Good morning, my name is Matt and I serve here as an elder. Uh, today we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord thank you you may be seated thank you Matt good morning My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC. If you and I haven't met, good to meet you. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. If you want to turn in your copy of the scripture to that portion of the Bible. Wanted to mention um, some news of our good friend Dave Whedon. If you guys know uh, Dave and Ginger Whedon, if you've met them, uh, the Lord called Ginger home uh, this week. So please be in prayer for Dave and his children and their whole family as they uh, are celebrating Ginger's homegoing while suffering the loss of a loved one they will miss very deeply. So with that in mind, why don't we pray, ask the Lord for his help in his word as well as uh, for the Whedon family. God, we thank you for your grace and kindness to us that you have seen fit to make known to us who you are and what you are doing in the world and in our own hearts through your word. And our prayer is this morning, as we briefly consider the truth of your word, that you would do a work in our hearts by your spirit. And God, we also lift before you uh, Dave and his children and their whole family and ask God for your peace and comfort as they uh, mourn uh, Ginger's passing. We thank you for your love in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, when we think about human relationships, anybody you've ever met, whether it be somebody uh, who's a friend, a family member, uh, anyone you've met, you meet them on a day or an evening, I don't know, you like meet them. You can think back, here's, I met this person on this day, and then the years go by, and the relationship changes. So, uh, you know, there's a difference between uh, your first date with your spouse and when you go out uh, to dinner after being married 30 years. There, those two events are different. I'm not saying better, worse, or any. I'm not evaluating the quality of those occasions. I'm just saying that's different. And the phrase we use is sort of an idiom or a uh, figure of speech. So we said there's water under the bridge. A relation, when you first meet somebody, now you're just... You meet them, everything's new, right? And then 20 years go by or 20 minutes, or pretty soon there's a bit of a history there. And that history sort of informs what that relationship is like, for good or for bad. I mean, it's just the way it is, right? Uh, and so that history changes things. 
And so what's interesting, this is how we relate to people, and that's normal. We're sort of used to it. What's interesting is we tend to think then that our relationship with God follows that same pattern. That we meet God, and then the years will go by. Now there's water under the bridge, and so now our relationship with God is not merely how we met, but our, our relationship with God is informed by what's gone on. Right? So I think you probably never even thought about it. Most of us haven't. But that, that's how normal human relationships function, so we assume. Therefore, my relationship with God would function the same way. Certainly, he saw me a particular way on the day we met. Uh, but now that some years have gone by and there's been a little water under the bridge, now, some, now things are a little bit different. And what the passage before us today is going to argue is the title of the message, The Timeless Love of God. And what we're going to discover is that our relationship with God doesn't change based on what happened because our relationship is based, with God is based on his timeless love, which doesn't change. And we have to challenge our hearts when we think about a relationship with God because we might assume things change over time for better or for worse. But, but the reality is how God related to, uh, to us on the day we met him is the same how he relates to us today, which is based on his timeless love. So that's what we're going to look at is two elements of how God's love stays the same for us from the day you met him and were redeemed by faith uh, to wherever you might be today. So look at verse 26. The timeless love of God, by grace he calls us. I'm just going to read verse 26. Maybe even not even the whole thing. For consider your calling brothers. In fact, I'm just going to stop there. For consider your calling brothers. That's, he's talking about their salvation, their conversion, when they met God. Think about it this way. Maybe this will help. If you apply for a job, some of you have applied for a job. I'm, I was waiting to see if that connected with anybody. Has anybody here ever applied for a job? I don't know. Got to go somewhere. Some you apply for a job. And so what you have to do, whatever job you apply for, you want to uh, try to convince this employer that the skills and experience you have are worth paying for. They have a certain function they need you to fill. And so you have to convince them that you can, f uh, you can fill those functions to such a degree that they should be willing to part with money and give it to you to do those things. So you, number one, you have to convince them that you're going to do that job somewhat effectively. Secondly, you might need to convince them that you're going to do it more effectively than anyone else who might be applying for a similar job. Some of you are, should be writing this down. Uh, he said, I thought I merely had to attest that I would show up. Yeah, attendance is important. Good for you. But anyway, so you want to, I can do the job. And in fact, and in fact, for the amount you're paying and for the amount I'm willing to take, I'm going to do that, that job better than anybody else. And so I have to convince you of that. And here's the thing, is we tend to assume that's how all relationships function. That it's a transactional relationship, that you do things I enjoy, I do things you enjoy, and we come and meet in the middle. And what we want to understand about our relationship with God, there is nothing about us that moved God to redeem us. There's not anything on your resume or your application that he's going to say, oh, I got to save this guy. I got to save this one. There isn't anything. The timeless love of God is this. By his grace, he calls us. Biblical grace is God acting in a way toward us that is completely and totally undeserved. And that's what 
grace is. And so when God called us, when God calls us to trust him for salvation and forgiveness of sins, he calls us to do that. And there is nothing intrinsic about us that is moving him to do that. There's nothing about us that is inciting him to move in that way. In fact, what we're going to learn in this passage is God does that for his own reasons. He does have his reasons. Those reasons aren't rooted in something about us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be great. So let's read again. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. He's thinking back to the salvation of the people in Corinth. If you want to read the details about that, you can read Acts 18. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So he wants them to think back to when they got saved. And he is assessing this congregation of believers. And he's reminding of them that not many of them had anything to offer from a worldly standpoint. And he points out a couple of ways that people generally view themselves as having something to offer in the world. So in the world, he's saying, um, not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. So in that culture, he would have been re referencing, number one, intellectual capacity. The ability to know and remember lots of information, maybe quote poets and philosophers. It would also be uh, some training in how a person would speak and, uh, and, and try to convince people. It was a particular way of speaking. It wouldn't be speaking of the lowborn. It would be an elevated nature of uh, communicating with people, especially when giving speeches or uh, discussing philosophy. Not many of you were powerful, and that's unchanged throughout culture. There's lots of ways to have power in any culture. Number one is to have political power. Uh, secondly is to have social power and influence, and, and also to have economic power power and influence. And if you can have all three of those, you have a lot of power. If you can control the politics and control the social structure as well as control the money, well, then you can do kind of whatever you want, right? And that's what he's talking about these is not many of the people in Corinth were people of those kinds of influence. People with political, social, or economic power. Not many of you were of noble birth, meaning a, a name that would carry some weight to it. A, a, a heritage that could carry some influence into the community. And what he is saying is when, when this body of believers was drawn to the Lord for faith, from a worldly point of view, not many of them had anything to offer. Most of them, when called, from a worldly standpoint, were at a place of great brokenness and need. Now, he's not saying all of them, but he's saying many of them. And he's asking them to think back to that place of conversion. That's a valuable thing to do. If you haven't done that, why don't you do that now? You know, think back to that moment when you got saved. Anybody who has been moved by God to accept salvation by faith, in that moment comes to a place, they're in a, a place of great need. The Holy Spirit does that work in our heart. We say, you know what? I need relationship with God and I don't have it. And I can have that through faith in Christ and I recognize that need. More than that, Paul is saying about the people of Corinth, most of you were broke. And why is that important? Because he's saying, you thought, some of you might have thought God saved you because he needed you on his team. Some of you might have thought God needed a, a smart person. Some of you thought God needed some cash. He was strapped. So he thought he would save somebody with some bankroll. God saw that the religious liberties of ancient Greece were starting to be uh, infringed upon. So God decided to redeem some political people to protect his people. This is all ridiculous. 
God does not need anything. He doesn't save people because he's short on change. And what Paul is trying to tell the people is think back to what it was like for you when you got saved. He extended salvation to you because you needed forgiveness and relationship with him. That's the manner in which he saved. Now note, he says, it's not many of you were powerful or noble or wise, but some were. He's not saying everybody was broke. He's not saying everybody was uneducated. He's not saying some people who were redeemed in Corinth, and this is going to present some problems later on in the book. We'll get to it in 2027. <laughs> it is creating some problems within the church. People of great means are exerting their influence in the community in a way that's inappropriate. But he's not saying that they had anything to offer. What he is saying is, in that moment of salvation, all people, whether with influence or without, whether with money or without, or with a good name or without, all people in that, in that moment recognize their need of God's grace. And he wants us to reflect on that moment and recognize that God saves people who are needy. Because that's, that's all there are. And here's his point. Look at verses 27 and 28. I just like giving life tips. If you're writing verses in birthday cards, this is not one to write. People are never going to take this well. Like, happy birthday, Billy. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. He's going to open that and say, what is this all about? So let me read it. God chose what is foolish... That's you. That's what he's essentially saying to the Corinthians. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So God's reaching out to the lowly, which frankly, that's all there are, all there is, God's reaching out to the lowly is on purpose. And his purpose is driven by these two verses. God wants to use that which is nothing to accomplish something that brings him glory. So what he does is he takes things that don't have glory on their own and he saves them, redeems them into purpose and has victory over things that are powerful for his glory. Because if he saves a people who have nothing to offer and uses them in powerful ways, who gets the glory? God does. And that's, in fact, the entire purpose here. He said, God chose what is low and despised to bring to nothing things that are not low and despised. So what God wants to do is powerfully help those who trust him to defeat all his enemies. That's why he wants you to take those who are nothing but who trust him and defeat his enemies. His enemies, sin, death, the devil, the brokenness of the world. That's what he wants to do. Take people who trust him and use them to defeat his enemies. He isn't trying to create an all-star team. He is the all-star, and he's just calling people who are lowly to join him in what he's doing so that he ends up having all of the glory. So what he's calling us to re reflect on in terms of our, our conversion is he saved us to bring him glory, not us. He saved us to be a part of something he's doing, not so he could help us do what we're doing. Everything is to draw us out of uh, our humiliation and our sin and death into life and purpose. But where's that life and purpose? It's in him. 
This is the nature of our salvation. By his grace, he calls us into something that matters. So let's say, for example, God saved you so he could make your life awesome. Now, maybe you had some really good purposes in your life. I'm sure some of us did. Maybe many of us had some really important purposes. But we might imagine that God worked powerfully to save us so he could make our life better. That would be nice. In fact, I wish he would. In fact, I suggest this to him often. <laughs> if the purpose of your salvation is for God to do what you want, who's God in that relationship? Yeah, you are. That makes no sense. I don't want to be rude, but you're a terrible God. You can barely keep your own life together, and now I'm supposed to pray to you? It's not going to happen. And so what we've done is, and we think that's our, to, it's in our best interest for God to figure out that he saved me for my purposes. And what Paul is trying to do is say, no, it's actually in your best interest for you to recognize he saved you out of your interests into his interests. He saves you out of nothingness to overcome something much bigger than our little life. He wants us to overcome sin, death, and his enemy, the devil, which he will do uh, completely. What, what, what the result of this is, outward, is in verse 29. So this is what happens if this is properly understood in our own heart in the lives of the people around us. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So when this is understood properly, where does, where does boasting occur? It can't happen. There's, there's nothing to brag about. God took nothing used us to accomplish his purposes by his power for his glory. So what are we going to brag about? Nothing, because he's the one who called us, and that's the nature of grace. Boasting is completely out of place. In fact, boasting undercuts God's purpose. The whole purpose is for, the, for there to be nothing for us to boast about. It undercuts his purpose. It's in our best interest for us to have nothing to boast about. It's best for us. When we see how God has worked to save us, we say, I've got nothing to boast about. I, there's nothing about me that, that drew God to save me. There's nothing about me that was insightful to trust God. There's nothing about me in my family background or whatever, my education or whatever it might be that God said, you know what, I better save this person. Everything about me was lost and dead and God just plucked me out of death and said, I'm going to redeem you. In order that, you can't boast but you instead can glory in the glory of God. That's the timeless love of God. That's how his grace saves us. Do you remember that? Do you remember that in your own life? you remember that moment? Because in that moment, I, I, I might suggest it's universally true. You might argue with me, and that's fine. I think for all of us in that moment, we, when we reflect back on that moment where God moved in our hearts to trust him, we knew we had nothing to offer. We, we knew it. We, we knew that we needed him and a lot of times it was coming out of great times of, for some of us, shame and guilt about things that have gone in our life. Some of us had gone through great moments of hurt and hardship. Whatever the circumstances were in our life that God worked out for his own purposes, he brings us to a place where we say, God, without you, I'm toast. And we remember that. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthian believers who have now become quite arrogant, he's saying, Let's think back to that day. And we need to, to kind of keep that on the right in front of us. 
Because that is the, the nature by which this relationship began. This is the timeless love of God. It was by his grace. In that moment of desperation, he moved in our heart to reach out to Christ and say, Jesus, I need forgiveness. Now, if you're thinking back and you can't remember a time when you did that, you need to figure that out. Because this might be the moment God is working on your heart where you say, you know what? I need forgiveness too. When we understand what God saved us from, it removes all of our pride. This is a really good thing. Because what it does in our life is it provides us the means to have joyful humility. Joyful humility. Here's why this is great. Because it means that God saved us because he wanted to and it all rests on him. I didn't have to fill out an application. I didn't have to earn it. I didn't have to show off. God just merely chose us. And in humility, we get to rest in the joy of knowing God's doing all the stuff. We can rest in him. That's the timeless God, timeless love of God. By grace, he calls us. Let's keep going. I want to keep going. Verses 30 and 31. The time, by the, uh, the timeless love of God, it's by his grace he gives us purpose. Let's think back to that job you applied for. Hopefully you're qualified for it, right? And let's say you got the job. You applied for a job and you got the job. How long are you going to keep that job? Well, it's pretty simple. As long as there's work to be done, maybe. But frankly, from an employer's standpoint, we know how it is. You're going to keep that job as long as you can do what, it is, what you said you could do. Say, hey, I can do these things. Sometimes a week goes by and the employer goes, oh, they can't do any of the things. They said they could. They don't know what they're doing. Right? Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever got one of those jobs? Say, I think I can figure out on the job. And then you get on the job and go, oh, I'm toast. <laughs> I'm going to see how long I can fool them. You're not fooling them. So as long as you're able to do the job, but as soon as it's recognized that you're not bringing anything to the table, it's not going to take long for that employer to figure out a way for you to be absent and gone. Right? You know, hey, appreciate you coming by, but it's not going to work out. So that's what happens. As long as you're able to do what you said you could do, as long as you bring value. Now here's the danger. Here's the danger when it comes to our Christian life. Many of us have a fantastic theology of conversion. It's by grace we were saved. And we have a terrible theology of walking with Christ. We say it is by grace you are saved. But it is by works you, can, you keep him happy. And when what we've somehow we've messed up and we said, I recognize I'm saved by grace, but to be a good Christian, I've got to keep him off my back. I've got to be good enough. I've got to be smart enough. I've got to be righteous enough. I've got to be valuable enough. I've got to prove to him I'm worth keeping around. Otherwise, he might let me go. Or otherwise, he might make my life difficult. And what the Apostle Paul wants to do for the Corinthians in, in our own life, what God, he wants us to recognize is our salvation was by grace and our life with God is all by grace. The whole thing is by grace. When God works in our life for his purpose, it isn't because we have something to offer that he needs, even as believers. And in fact, that's the whole point. He calls us as believers to glorify him for his reasons, even though we don't have anything to offer. 
We are saved by grace, and we walk in righteousness with God by grace. Let's look at verses 30 and 31 of this passage. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So look at the two phrases here, if you don't mind. In verse 26, he says, consider your calling. He wants you to look back. See what he's doing there? Consider your calling, back to when you got saved. But then in verse 30, he says, you are in Jesus. So what he's saying is that God, God drew you back to your calling. He drew you into him by his grace. But in Christ, what is it? It's still by his grace. It's because you are in Christ that you are made uh, purposeful. And so what he does is he gives us three elements of how God works in our life by his grace. And I just want to highlight each of these. So if you don't mind, look at it. He says, we have become, uh, who became to us wisdom from God? That is, God makes us his wisdom in three areas. Let me read the three words. It's real easy. The three words are this. You ready? Are you ready? Okay, good. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Do you see those? Are that, and they might be translated different in your translation. I'm using the ESV, so that's what I'm sticking with right now. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. What I wanted to do just quickly show you how his grace gives us purpose in those three areas as believers. Is that okay? Here we go. Righteousness. When we trust Jesus, our righteousness is determined by Jesus' righteousness. Without Christ, whether or not you are righteous is evaluated by your righteousness. And you can determine how good you are at being perfect. And if you're not sure how good it is, ask the person next to you. They'd be happy to tell you. So you've got two options. You can stand before God and ask him to accept you based on your quality of righteousness. And the Bible is honest. Your quality of righteousness is terrible. Or you can stand before God and ask him to access you, accept you based on the righteousness of Jesus. So what he's saying here is in Christ by grace, believers, their righteousness is determined by the righteousness of Christ, okay? So if you're going to measure your righteousness, how do you measure it? You attach a righteousness meter. I don't have one, but just pretend here with me just for a minute. Where would you, who would you attach that to if you want to know how righteous you are? You would attach that to Jesus. And what's it going to register? All the way. Whatever all the way is on a righteousness meter. I don't know with the grades, but it's... I think Wagyu. Wagyu is that, it's, it's that good. It's the best kind of righteousness. It's all the way to the top. I don't know why that came up. I'm sorry, it's the way my brain works. Leave me alone, stop judging. So that means at any given moment, how much does your righteousness fluctuate? None, but have you met you? Right, so, so what do we call that if you get to be you and your righteousness never fluctuates, ever. That's called grace. That means the, the nature 
of your identity in God on a day-by-day basis is characterized by grace. Because on any given moment, you are considered as righteous as Christ because you put your faith in him. Now, your actions and your attitudes are not as righteous as Christ. Agreed? Yes, absolutely. So how can it be that I can live my life in a manner that is not as righteous as Christ, and yet, when evaluated, my righteousness is considered as righteous as Christ. So I can be acceptable by God. So in in Hebrews chapter 10, it tells me, I can just walk into the throne room of God anytime I want in prayer. And the reason for that is grace. So this is the timeless love of God. How were we converted? By grace. How do we live each and every day being considered as righteous as Christ? It's by grace. This is our identity. So our purpose then in God, in that righteousness, is to, number one, learn to, to trust that reality more than we do. Number one is to recognize that our righteousness is not determined by our behavior, it's determined by Christ's behavior. So number one, that should provide us some level of comfort to know God assesses my righteousness and yours based on Christ. But secondly, it should move us to want to live consistent with who we are. If we have been made righteous, why would we want to live in sin? Now we struggle with the flesh, but what this means is by grace, God gives us the the motivation to live is to live consistent with what he's already done. He's calling us as believers to recognize we're righteous and say, Righteous people don't do this anymore. I'm going to set this aside. Righteous people do show generosity and kindness and grace to others. So I want to engage in those activities more. So the grace he has given us gives us purpose. In righteousness, he gives us purpose to recognize our righteousness comes from Jesus. And he gives us purpose to live in that identity more and more each day. And God brings himself glory by defeating sin in our life, by already making us righteous. Because when you say no to sin and you say yes to God, he is glorified because he gave you the power to do it and he had already made you righteous anyway. So that's one of the ways that we understand our purpose. One of our purposes is a huge part of who we are as Christians is to recognize we're righteous in Christ and live consistent with how he has made us already. That's our identity. What's the next one? Sanctification. Maybe this is a little bit similar to righteousness. Sanctification is a fancy word for becoming holy or having specific purpose. And I might even phrase it this way in this context. It's a life of becoming more like our Savior, Jesus. So God's love is timeless for us because by his grace he gives us purpose to be drawn more and more to imitate and be like our Savior, Jesus. Jesus. So this is a life in Christ that is filled with the desire to be more like him out of love and worship. So what this means is we are moved not by guilt, not by shame. We are moved by affection and moved by a recognition that he is God. And so out of love and worship for our Savior Christ, we desire to be more like Jesus. What are some things Jesus is like? Humble, specific to this passage, putting others first, serving others, offering to forgiveness to others who have wronged us, 
meekness, which means not using my power and influence to accomplish my purposes, but being willing to seek the Lord and his power through prayer. Self-control is something Jesus did. Have we ever done self-control? Well, I'm pretty diligent to do the things I want. I feel like that's self-control, right? I mean, somebody's got somebody's to eat the leftover pie. It's not going to eat itself. <laughs> Love for others, especially those who don't deserve it. Jesus-y kind of stuff. If you want to see a list of things that are really Jesus-y, look up Galatians chapter 5. I think there's a list of them. We call them the, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Did I miss one? Goodness, yeah, I, I'm always skipping that one. <laughs> Sanctification, a life in Jesus of a desire to become more like Jesus, recognizing I'm not like him. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. This is how this works. There's some tension here that I want us to recognize as we seek to become like Jesus by God's grace. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Did I tell you, this is Philippians 2.12, did I say that? So he's saying here, work out your salvation. Having received God's grace, live like Jesus. Act like Jesus. If you want to know why, read verses 5 through 11, the preceding chapter, uh, the preceding paragraph where he describes Christ's humiliation. So here he says, Therefore, my beloved, as in my presence, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he's saying, consciously as an act of worship, decide with your own volition and will to choose as an act of worship and love and devotion to he who saved you by his grace to want to be more like Jesus. Now, some of you, because you're church people, you want the award for the one who's working hardest to be like Jesus. You want the trophy, whatever that is. Because now you're thinking, I see it, I know, I know how religious people work, I'm one. You're thinking, so then I'm going to have something to brag about. Because I have a lot more self-control than the guy next to me. So therefore, since I am intentionally seeking to be like Jesus... I've got something now to like put on my little I'm awesome Christian card, right? Wrong. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 13. Some of you read ahead. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for whose pleasure? His good pleasure. So here's how it works. You're walking down the street and you get tempted. I don't know what it is, but you just thought of it. Walking down the street, you get tempted. I don't know what it is. I don't know what your, what your sin of choice is. We all have different sins of choice, right? So you're walking down the street, or you're at your home, or at your work, whatever it is, your sin of choice presents the opportunity, and nobody will know. Nobody. Nobody will ever find out. Of course, that's a lie, but anyway. And you, and you, and this is incredible, good for you, and you, this sin has been presented to you, and it's enticing, no one will ever know, it will cost you nothing, and you... Because you love Jesus, say what? No thanks. I'm good. Jesus, I love you more than I love that little temptation. I'm going to move along. No thank you. 
And you walk away and got a little spring in your step, right? You're feeling good, you did the right thing. Nothing wrong with that, I hope you feel good about it. Who did it? I hate to break it to you. You did nothing. That's what this, it is God who works in you. So even in those moments when God has given us the power and strength by his spirit, that's a, that's a Holy Spirit working in you, making you think, you know what, this is not for me. I don't, I'm not like that anymore. I'm righteous. I don't do that. I'm going to glorify God and say, no, the reality is when we, even when we take the initiative and say, I want to be like Jesus, the reality is, is God doing that work in our lives. That's the reality. It's always grace. It's grace. It's grace. If you woke up this week a couple times this week and you cracked open your Bible and you realized your Bible reading was in 2 Chronicles, which is 3,000 names you can't pronounce for like 15 chapters, <laughs> you say, Lord, have mercy. Why is this even in here? We don't have time, but it's a reason. there's a reason. And you say, you know what? I'm going to read 3,000 names I can't pronounce. Maybe you were smart and did the, had the guy read it. Um, that's what I would do. Just follow him along. I would choose the British accent. Those names sound better with a British accent. <laughs> and you say, you know, I'm going to read my Bible. And you, and, you, and, you, and you say, you know what? I read my Bible. I feel good about that. I do want you to feel good about it. But I also want you to recognize you should feel good about it because God did it for you. That was God working in your life. That's the humility of grace every day. That we, we, on one hand, we're making the choice to follow Christ. On the other hand, we are recognizing it's all him all day, every day. That's where that humility comes from. So our righteousness tells us who we are. Our sanctification tells us we rest in God to make us more like Jesus. He made us righteous, so now I want to be like Jesus. And even in those moments where he gives me the strength to be like Christ, I give him the glory. Okay, last one, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, redemption. Redemption here, he's speaking specifically really in a way to recognize this is the redeeming us out of sin into holiness. The way you would uh, purchase someone who is, who is in bondage. You, you pay off their debt so they're no longer indebted and so now they experience liberty. And what he is arguing here is by God's grace in Christ we are no longer indebted to Sin, redemption specifically is saying we are no longer indebted to sin. We are not beholden to act on our fleshly appetites. This is a nice way of saying, a polite way of saying we are, are saved from sin. So freedom from sin is not freedom to sin. Those things don't equate with one another. Our debt has been, set, has been paid, so by that, by that grace of God to redeem us from sin, we now have the power in the Spirit to live a life of holiness, being uh, empowered to say no to the appetites of our flesh. Our flesh is filled with all kinds of appetites which aren't good for us. But just because we want something doesn't mean we ought to have something. And the Bible tells us quite clearly what it looks like to follow God in holiness. And what he's saying here is about redemption is our Christian life can look like more and more over time saying no to sin and yes to obeying God in righteousness because he has redeemed us out of it. Sin no longer has any power over us. Okay, look back, if you will, at verse 29. The timeless love of God, by his grace he calls us why is that? Verse 29. What's the reason? So no human being can boast in the presence of God. See that? 
Okay, now in verse 30, we're going to talk about being timeless love of God. God gives us as Christians his purpose. What's the reason for it? Look at verse 31. What's he say? So that it's written, quotes from Jeremiah here, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You got saved by grace. Who gets to brag? Well, not you. And now you're living by grace in Christ and you happen to be more like Jesus today than you were a year ago, which I hope it's true. That you've seen some movement in your spiritual life. There are things you used to do that you no longer do. And there are things now today you do for others in service that you used to never do. And so now today you can say, I'm not like Jesus perfectly, but I'm more than I used to be. So who gets to brag? Not you. That's the purpose. The whole purpose is to take people who don't deserve to be saved, make them like Jesus who don't deserve to be like Jesus. That's the point. Because who gets the glory for that? God gets the glory for all of that. So let me tell you a little something about being a Christian. The trajectory of the Christian life is a greater and greater and greater awareness of what Christ has done for you and how little you have done. And many of us thought the Christian life is a greater and a greater awareness of how awesome I have become. And so by the end of my Christian life, supposedly I won't need God anymore, right? And if you, if you don't believe me, ask some old people. Well, old people who have been Christians a long time. This is a life of realizing I need more grace today than I did 20 years ago. And the reality is, 20 years from now, we're going to look back at today and say, I didn't realize how much grace I needed then. That's the trajectory of the Christian life. The more you press into the Lord, the more we recognize we're not bringing a whole lot to the table. The closer we get to glory, we realize we're not, we're not as big as a deal as we thought we were. 1 Peter 3.15 1 Peter 3, 15. I'm pick, we're picking up in the middle of a sentence here. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And do it with gentleness and respect. Some of us need to take a note of that. Underline that in your Bible. Okay. So somebody comes up to you and says, I want to know why you have hope. I hope you've had that happen. Somebody walks up to you, maybe someone at work, maybe a family member, says, listen, I, I see what's going on in your life. Your life is terrible. You ever had somebody, you know what, your life is awful, but you have hope, and I want to know uh, why you have hope. And you say, well, my life's not that bad. So what's the answer there? Well, see, the problem is, for many of us, it changed. When we first got saved, we wanted people to ask us that. Why do you have hope? I have hope because Jesus saved a sinner like me. And then 20 years later, somebody says, why do you have hope? And we say silly things like, I read my Bible every day. You have hope because you read your Bible every day? What if you go blind? What if your mind goes on you? What if you lose your Bible? Or what if, just Captain Obvious here, what if you just don't read your Bible every day? Where's your hope go? So your hope is dependent on your ability to be self-controlled and read your Bible every day? That's terrible hope. Now, why do you have hope? 
Well, because we've been married a long time because we both love Jesus. Okay. I've seen people who love Jesus not be married. Right? So that's a terrible hope. I mean, it's a good hope. I want people to be married a long time and both love Jesus. I want that. But that's not a great hope. That's a temporary hope. See, what happened is our hope changed. So people come to us, why do you have hope? Because I don't drink anymore. Okay, well, if you had a problem drinking, you don't drink anymore, good for you. Stick with that. That's a terrible hope. Lots of people don't drink. They're called Muslims. I mean, they don't drink. Do they have hope? No, because you can't get saved following Islam. You have to follow Jesus. Right? So, so we have these, what happens is, is we get religion. We get saved and then for some reason we get religion. Instead of telling people the hope which is Jesus, we tell people to get religion. It's a terrible hope. What do people need? They need Jesus. So when people come to us as Christians 20 years, something needs to change in us where our hope today is not our religion. Our hope today is still Jesus saved a sinner like me. And that's what happened to the Corinthian believers. Somebody comes up to you, why do your kids turn out so well? Some of us say, but that never happened. Nobody's ever asked me that. I can't help you there. All right? We say silly things. Now it's going to get personal. Sorry. Send them to Christian school. I homeschool them. We do family devotions every night. We read a psalm. I pray for my kids when they're in their bed. I sing over them when they're sleeping. I don't know, whatever your technique is, right? And so we have just given them a hope. I hate to break this to you. I know some awful parents, none of them are here, <laughs> that have some fantastic kids. Do you know these guys? You know them. You know people like this. Like, you look at these parents and you say, they should license parents. That's, when, that's what you think of them. They, you should have to get a license. And they've got some kids who love Jesus. And then I know other parents. They did all the things. They did all the stuff. And their kids went a different route. Do you know those kind of parents? Right. And some of us are those parents. And so when somebody comes to us and says, what's your hope? I hope it's not because I'm a good parent, because I'm a good spouse, because I'm a good religious person. Why can I have hope even though I don't have control over the world around me? Jesus saved a sinner like me. And the longer you're a Christian, the more you should realize that, not the less. And the Corinthian believers did what we do. The more they were a Christian, the more they thought they needed Jesus less. And if people are going to come to us as hope for hope, they should recognize that we have hope in the one thing that gives us hope, the grace of Jesus. Okay, let me wrap this up. Three things. Now, look, at, there are three lines, but it's like six things each line. So, uh, I don't have to tell you. If your, if your hope that was that this was ending, that was a false hope. <laughs> How did Jesus find you? I just want you to go back to what we were talking about before. I want you to think back to when God drew you to himself for salvation. How do he find you? Why don't you reflect a little bit on that moment of your calling, whatever it might have been. One of the ways we can think about this, the way Paul challenged us by, his, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is how did God's calling in that moment, how did that display his glory and his grace? Because I think for most of us, we'd recognize we didn't deserve him to call us in that moment. That we weren't seeking him, he sought us. 
So if you think back to that moment when you were moved by God to experience his glory and extending grace to you, the question Paul has for us from this passage is how should that moment still be informing our life today? How should that moment be drawn out? How, how should that grace still be feeding into us today? Or maybe the inverse of that, have we, have we forgotten how much we needed his grace? We spent our Christian lives trying to convince God he didn't have to show us as much grace as he needed to. And Paul calls us to say, no, bask in his grace. You needed it then, you needed it the next day, the next week, the next year, and you still need it as much today. Next thing. I don't know if that was three things, but here we go. When God saves you, he saves you from sin and its penalty. So when, when God moves in your heart to trust Jesus for forgiveness, he saves you from sin. So sin can no longer kill you. Sin can no longer separate you from God. It separates you, uh, can no longer separate you from God. We no longer have to pay the penalty for sin. So the question many of us need to consider about God's grace, have we seriously considered that God did not save us from all the stuff sin did so that we could sin more? And I think there might be some of us who need to really sit down with the Lord and say, you know what? I've become really comfortable with a couple of sins in my life that you saved me from, not to. There might be a couple of things in our life that we've said, no, this one's okay. It's not the end of the world. Nobody goes to jail for this. Whatever it might be. And the reality is when we are confronted with the grace of Christ, we're moved to step away from sin, not into it. And by God's grace, I pray, uh, the, the reformers called this a severe mercy, where he exposes the wound of our heart. And he says, no, I want, to, I want that. I don't want you to hold on to this habit. I saved you from this. I, di I didn't save you to keep doing this. And some of us know exactly what I'm talking about, and today might be a great day to turn that over to the Lord and say, God, I want to experience your, your grace to walk away from this. Okay, last thing. Let's talk a little bit about relationships with people around you. This really is last. When you think about other Christians, you don't have any other, any Christians in your life where everything went poorly? Uh, good example, we were talking about jobs earlier. So a person loses his job or a person's business fails. And so you say that person's business failed because they're lazy and unintelligent. That person's children are off the rails because they're not an attentive parent. They worked too much. They worked too little. They didn't take them to church enough. They took them to church too much. So we, we assess people, and if you want to see this on display, read the book of Job. Job's life went off the rails and his three friends came and said, the reason your life is, is off the rails is because you aren't earning God's favor enough. And we tend to do a, an average job of recognizing we have favor with God, not because we earn it, but because God is, is just kind to us. But then we look at other believers whose, whose lives are falling apart and we decide their lives are falling apart because they're bad Christians. So I'll let you in on something. One of them I already let you in on. Number one, there are really good parents that have bad children and there are really bad parents that have good children. 
So judging the parents might not be a great idea. Maybe if you have close relationship with friends, you could challenge one another to be good stewards of the opportunity, but to leave the outcome in God's hands, right? Let me let you in on another secret. I know some of you don't know this, but some of you know it better than others. There are some really lazy people who have amazingly successful businesses. And you think I'm kidding. This is absolutely true. And so what happens is somebody business going there and say, well, that's because they judge by God because they're lazy. Well, then what's, is God not on duty? What about the lazy guy who's just killing it? Don't those guys drive you nuts? Bothers me too. The reason is this. We tend to apply a different kind of grace to the people around us. We recognize how much we need grace, but we want one another to earn favor. And what we want to do in the body of Christ, and, and the church in Corinth was doing this poorly, what we want to do in the body of Christ is be such that we experience so much of God's grace, we can extend that grace to one another all the time. That we can let one another not be all the way like Jesus yet. That we can be a, a community where grace is the defining feature. Each of us having earned nothing in front of God, but having received completely favor because of God's grace. And so therefore we extend to one another favor. Not because we deserve it, but because Jesus gave that to us. That's how that love of God can influence a community of believers like this. The timeless love of God. By grace he calls us. And by grace, he gives us purpose. Jesus, we thank you for the love you have shown us in Christ. Thank you for the mercy you have shown us. I pray, God, for many who are here this morning who have not yet put their faith in you. And my prayer is, God, this might be that moment where you call them to righteousness by faith. You have told us, God, that every single one of us is a sinner. We've rebelled against you and our life doesn't line up with the way you want us to live. And the reality is that means we can't have a relationship with you. But because Jesus died on the cross, when we trust you, you make us righteous. And you restore to us life in you forever. And God, I pray for the people here in this room this morning who who understand they still need your forgiveness, that in this moment they would seek it in their hearts and minds and rest in you for their righteousness. God, I also pray for those of us who are believers that somehow we have been convinced that we still have to earn your favor. And I pray, God, that you would help us to recognize that your grace continues all the way through our life with you. And your goal is to have all of the glory for what happens in our life, that we would have nothing to boast about. Would you allow us, God, to receive that grace day in and day out? And God, would you give us the strength to extend that same grace to one another? We thank you for Jesus. We can't wait till you return. In his name we pray. Amen. Why don't we stand up as uh, we close with a song? Mm -hmm.